Welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And we have a very cool guest uh, who we're going to talk to in a minute. But uh, for now, uh, I'd like to do a little bit of housekeeping. I believe Andy has a very exciting announcement about some really cool merch that we're going to have ready for our patrons soon, Andy. That's right. Folks, the stickers are in from Radix Media. Woo. While Jamie and Sean were away, I ordered the stickers and uh, just dropped it off for them. They got their first look at them, and they can be yours for uh, if you're at the $5 tier. Hell yeah. Um, you can get these stickers. They're perfect for the back of your cell phone, uh, you know, covering up the Apple logo on your Mac or, um, you know. Wait, what do you, what do you mean? Just for, like, a, not a bumper sticker or? I, are you saying the stickers are small? No, take a look. Uh, okay. They're the perfect size mm. for uh, mm. if you have like a, one of those mini water bottles, not like the full size one. But, uh, yeah, I think I could probably use this for my cat's water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> a baby bottle, perhaps? I mean, that's the mindset, right? Uh, yeah, I guess maybe so. a water bottle for a mouse. So perhaps a mapache. What exactly happened with the stickers? Um, well, all right. To be honest with you, here's the thing. I'm a very cosmopolitan guy. <laughs> I used the metric system. <laughs> I did not know what a two-inch square meant. <laughs> it's like two inches. That's that's a big square. So, so that's a lot of meters. Yeah, um, and uh, they're small. Uh, but <laughs> we are not. We're not going to do that to our audience. We're going to give you some small stickers. We're going to probably print some bigger stickers. I think we're going to print some bigger stickers. Yeah, we're going, a combination. Uh, and we're going to, you know, we're going to find some cool stuff to throw to you. So initially our plan was to have like a two sticker thing that we send out. But now we're going to have Dr. Antifada's uh, <laughs> mindset pack. Hell yeah. Uh, we don't know what's going to be in it yet. but Some brain, anyone, brain bomb perhaps. Antifada's brain bomb. brain bomb. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyone who subscribes for five bucks is going to get one. And it's going to be cool. It's going to be going to be big people. Yep. As Bigger than the stickers that we currently have, I hope. So as we sit here in the studio, a movement uh, is ongoing in France right now. It's called the Gilets Jaunes, which means the Yellow Jackets. Uh, have you guys seen any of the footage of uh, what's going on over there? Oh, yes, we have. Riot porn to the max. But I'm confused because uh, when I first heard about it, it seemed like they were rioting over some, uh, I don't, not necessarily left-wing things like a carbon tax. Uh, my friend near a tandem said that um, progressives should not support them because they are basically like these scary right populists who hate the environment. Wait, Nira Tandon, what did your friend Nira have to say? Do you have uh, any evidence of how she might feel about these folks? She's a very high paid political figure. So obviously she probably understands what's going on mm. in uh, detail. So what did she say? What did uh, this six figure if, pundit if, have if to if say? If only there were some way we could find out what Nira Tandon were thinking and feeling at any given point <laughs> in time. Oh, wait. There's her Twitter. How many glasses of wine do you think she had before this tweet? Mm, how many bars? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Nira. You tell us. So she tweeted one tweet, and I quote, I don't understand why any progressive is cheering French protesters who are amassing against a carbon tax. And then she tweeted, she retweeted some, uh, wh well, who is this guy? I don't know who he is. But he says the yellow vests are increasingly looking like a French version of the Tea Party. Hmm. Cut taxes in half. Less immigration, which is admittedly questionable. Leave the EU and NATO. 
who cares? But do carry right on glorifying the movement. After all, anything must be better than Macron, right? And, uh, and then she tweeted, she retweeted another one um, saying, Russian social media accounts reported to be linked to Paris oh, protests. Oh, shut the fuck so up. Basically get, accusing uh, them of being uh, Russian bots. Get the fuck and, off your Russia shit. Yeah, Jesus yeah. And then there was another retweet. I guess they took a survey of the say, people who were rioting. Did you say retweet? Another uh, retweet. <laughs> retweet, yeah. Uh, That's the best way to say it. I, I guess uh, they took a survey. Retweet. I, I, this, they took a survey of the people who were rioting <laughs> and uh, asked them who they voted for in the 2017 election. Midst, mi uh, like mid-riot. Yeah. There's yeah. like a, a guy going around from Gallup like, hey, before you throw a brick through that window or deface the Arc de Triomphe, uh, who'd you vote for last time? Yeah, something like that. And apparently 42% of them voted for Marine Le Pen. Not good. 20% Melancon, 16% Filon, 5% Macron, oh well, dot, dot, dot. So <laughs> I'm, I'm a little confused. Uh, can you try to shed some light on this for us, babe? Well, it's very tough sitting over here in New York City uh, to really know all the things that are going on in France. But my understanding is that, yes, this Yellow Jackets protest was started. Uh, the precipitating factor for it, shall you say, was an increase in the gas tax over in France. Um, it would make sense that a lot of folks from the countryside, because there's been tons of road blockades and there's been people massing both in the city and the countryside, it would make sense that people who rely on vehicles in like the French country would be hit pretty hard by a regressive tax, whether it was for good reasons uh, or bad. So, you know, simply because it uh, popped off, as we like to say, uh, over uh, this particular issue doesn't mean that it doesn't reflect the real anger and frustration of the French working class. And, uh, you know, for people who are trying to defend Macron, I think besides being a ne neoliberal piece of shit who should probably die, his approval rating is about 20 percent right now. So. So it's almost like the uh, neoliberal center is uh, not a sustainable way to provide a check on the power of the populist right. It only feeds the fires, so to speak. It's really funny when somebody is uh, or like people are, are angry about the raising cost of living. And the response <laughs> to that is like, oh, all they care about is consumerist issues. Right. That's, just not, that's like also an all, like people on the left take that standpoint, too. Mm -hmm. um, and people on the left generally were really concerned about the fact that this was not a explicitly left or like a union led movement and that there are uh, right and fascist uh, elements to the movement. Um, as far as I can tell, they're not unsubstantial elements. Uh, I think I heard a story that like last Saturday, uh, two, two Saturdays ago, uh, there was like one block that was like of the right, one block that was of the left. But the majority of it in, in Paris was just people not really in a block that are just, you know, coming out to protest and they're all together and they're not, uh, you know, separating themselves based on their politics. So it's like a new movement that's emerging. And out of that uh, movement initially, there was this list drawn up of popular demands, uh, like maybe 40 of them. This is what Nira Tandon was referencing. And it asked for like a 25% or like the reduction of the, the tax on GDP to go down to 25%. I, I you know I haven't really read into exactly what it that was means. The, yeah, reti uh, retirement age going down, uh, right? So it, it's broadly like a left wing list of demands, um, and also like the movement is very cognizant of the fact that Macron just cut taxes on on the wealthiest people. Mm. So he cut taxes for the wealthy, and then he's raising them on everybody right. through taxes on gasoline. And there was a part of this uh, of these demands. Many of them are really great. Many of them are like huh, sounds kind of like a centrist thing. I don't know. 
But then three of them were about immigration. Uh, the first one was all asylum seekers will receive a fair hearing. The second one was uh, if they have the fair hearing and they're determined that their asylum claims are not legitimate, they should be deported. Uh, and then the third one was, um, and if, they, if they're allowed to stay, they have to become French by learning uh, French and being assimilated into the culture. Yeah. So these are like, La you know, That last part, the laïcité, if folks don't know, that's the, the concept in French of um, secularism. Mm -hmm. It's a big part of the republicanism is becoming French. And there is something, I think, problematic about that, certainly in terms of the integration of uh, French people. But yeah. like, it's not like they're, they're calling for, you know, the mass, um, you know, concent concentration camps sort of like murdering of folks it's not a progressive demand but it is a very french sort of demand that uh this laicite sort of concept and i have no doubt that that is a popular sentiment among yeah. a lot of the people protesting yeah. Yeah. um I, I totally disagree with it of course uh, but what's uh, really but why i bring this up is well first of all i've heard that this list of demands is kind of like old news it came out like you know, 10 days ago. And since then, the movement generalized to being about just getting rid of Macron, like the people demand the fall of the regime became like a more popular sentiment than this list of 40 demands. Ooh, like Hosni uh, Mubarak, sort of mm -hmm. uh, same, same as the Arab Spring, people were chanting. Yeah, that is the apparently the Arab Spring chant has been, wow. you know, uh, generalized in this protest. And also, there's a effort at I don't know how widespread it is by people to uh, expel and challenge the right wing elements. So I'll play a little bit of audio um, from this video that was posted on uh, Saturday um, from the streets of Paris. This was uh, a fight that broke out um, against the Action Francais bloc, which is like a royalist neo fascist bloc. <laughs> We are legion. Yeah, so I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. That's, um, you know, a block of anti-fascists, people of color, uh, wearing the, the yellow vests, but also wearing masks, um, just running out this, this right-wing group. Well, wow, our uh, entry-level employees are really doing a good job <laughs> over there, folks. Talk about internationalism. So since uh, mid-November, when this, uh, you know, small, spontaneous movement began, uh, you saw a very, very quick generalization. Um, you saw essentially something similar to what we saw in, say, Occupy in the United States and the Indignados, you know, the squares movement uh, in Spain and Greece and elsewhere happened finally in France because France hasn't, hadn't had that moment yet, right, since the crisis. Um, in typical French fashion, because French is, uh, France's republic is uh, founded on violent insurrection, and we've seen many of those over the years, uh, it has generalized itself and also become uh, violent towards things like property and uh, statues and triumphal arcs. arcs. Yes. Think of the arcs. Um, but people need to understand, too, that A, it's the class in motion. It's the working class in motion. Um, that working class is not a perfect working class. They've found uh, this one guy, he's a metal worker, and a, he was claiming to be a spokesperson for them. They went on his Facebook and they saw that he had posted anti-Muslim sentiments in the past on his Facebook account. Um, he was subsequently removed as a spokesperson for this leaderless group. Um, we, of course, don't support that, but we have to understand that when mass, massive amounts of people are in the streets, uh, for very populist and in some cases leftist reasons, right? Uh, they demand the end of the regime or they want uh, to lower the retirement age. They want to stop these neoliberal reforms that Macron is doing is that you're going to have the residue 
of many of the social pathologies that existed before that and continue to exist in French society. So I think, it, as Andy was trying to point out, you have to look at it holistically, right? You have to look at what this movement seems to be about and what they're attacking. And the important point, too, is that before December 1st, which is when that poor Ark suffered such violence, uh, I think the poll was 72%. Oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, 73 to 82%, depending on what poll you were looking at, of the French people supported uh, the Yellow Jackets movement. If you look at what happens after they uh, burn luxury cars and smash up shops on the uh, Alizé in Paris, only 72% of the French population <laughs> supported it. So, I mean... Yeah, those, those, those kinds of violent uh, extra electoral tactics are just never going to gain the support of the <laughs> French people. So I've been looking at some hot takes that go beyond even Nira Tandon, uh, The Guardian, uh, New Yorker, uh, Politico and whatnot. And this constant refrain that you see, um, and you see this, it, actually this is from a Canadian uh, public television, I'm sorry, this is from a Canadian uh, newspaper. It says, uh, you know, that these people are leaderless and they're, you know, unhinged and they ha may have some real concerns, but, you know, at the end they say, they quote a guy, a uh, 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 um, don't boo, vote. Yeah. They quote a guy at the Eurasia Group Risk Consultancy as saying that these, they will, and he's talking about the movement, they will understand that a proportional ballot gives them the best chance of making a splash. Hmm, and then, where have uh, I heard that one before? Right. In the midst of all the, you know, this massive upsurge of, you know, spontaneous and very well organized blockages and uh, protests and, and whatnot. And you see the same thing in the New Yorker, right? They're saying that, oh, you know, the left wing is trying to, as they always do, blame this on neoliberalism, right? But these folks need to come together and create a new political party that's going to be able to unite all their demands and, you know, defeat Macron at the ballot box. Because that worked so well in the past. Like, I don't know. The episode we just did on Syriza. Right. So it really, I think, shows, you know, at least in the bourgeois media, they're, they're not only lack failure of imagination to imagine that, you know, a group of people is not the mob to be scared of, but is actually a, you know, self-organized and um, semi-coherent, becoming more coherent movement against a lot of things that are directly affecting their lives, but also that uh, they can't fit them into the small box the rubric that they want to fit them into that as this movement develops um it may move in that direction but it may possibly not and uh they're very upset when things like that happen because it doesn't make sense yeah it doesn't fit into their preconceived notion of what politics are and what you need to do in order to be a legitimate participant in politics but uh, you know people are always telling us not to be uh purists not to be bad faith ultras so in the spirit of uh, pragmatism, I'm going to say the jury's still out on this movement. Um, and just because there are some really bad elements doesn't mean that the uh, left elements of the working class can't um, shape it into something liberatory as it continues. Exactly. I think the jury's still out on this one. Uh, but I think that the French working class, um, as Jamie said, I think they're... And, Andy too. I'm not being very coherent right now. I think as both uh, Andy and Jamie pointed to, there is a real kernel of working class discontent that is based on the sort of neoliberalization of the French economy. And so nobody knows where this thing is going to go, but um, I, I think it's, it's very interesting and heartening to see people finally rising up, not just against Macron, but uh, the entire system. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to the idea that um, the times when people revolt 
uh, it's not always because they're just completely beaten down and depressed and desperate, right? A lot of the time, it's when you had a functioning social democratic society where people are used to a certain standard of living and then you try to take that away from them or maybe you're just looking to get a new laptop or a <laughs> few bottles of wine and that's fine too you know it, it, it's complicated yeah there's actually this, you remind me this motherfucker <laughs> sorry in fucking the new yorker uh says um oh you know like uh we're once again in the presence of progressive of a progressive insistence that all popular movements, no matter how reactionary their rhetoric or obnoxious their allies, are really left movements that have yet to discover their true nature. And then he does like a scare parenthesis. Feelings of exclusion and dispossession doubtless exist throughout France, as they do in this country, but it also must be said that the pet social programs of Bernie Sanders progressives here, universal health care, paid maternity leave, and government subvented higher education are already in place there. So what could the French people possibly be. what could they possibly want seeing as you know the bernie sanders program is the furthest left program course, that yeah. exists right once you have that then you stop and you don't you do not go to the arc de triomphe you do not go to the washington monument you don't go anywhere except your job and enjoy your nanny state health care yeah you eat your cocon vin <laughs> and you stfu exactly so fuck that guy i mean even if you have these sort of social democratic means it doesn't mean that folks won't want more and in fact the french people do so elsewhere in the international class struggle um we've been thinking a lot lately about uh, immigration and about labor and to that end we have an interview with justin acres chacon um we recorded it earlier today and it speaks to a lot of those issues so uh here we go well before we start it um i don't apologize much on this show i don't apologize much in general except to jamie but um i will apologize to our fans um i in episode 25 when our good friend vapor knave what's up vapor knave um asked us uh what our uh thoughts were on uh, a woman named angela nagel uh, debating a man named Sargon of Akkad, um, what we thought of that, uh, I gave a very judicious answer because I assumed good faith and good intentions on the part of this Angola woman. And um, I would like to issue a formal retraction um, given recent events, recent articles that have been written, specifically about issues of migration and sovereignty and what the left needs to do in terms of borders and this, that, and the other thing. I was wrong. There's, there's no good faith. There's no good intentions. So uh, formal apology to everybody. And uh, I think this interview is really going to allow us to dig into a lot of the uh, erroneous conceptions that are presented to us in the case against open borders. That's a really good self-crit, babe. I'm proud of you. Appreciate it. You'll make a Maoist of me yet. <laughs> So we are speaking with Justin Akers Chacon right now. He is a professor of U.S. history at Chicano Studies in San Diego, California. He has contributed to the International Socialist Review and has written three books on the topic we're going to be discussing today. And those books are Immigration, Opposing Viewpoints, uh, No One is Illegal with Mike Davis, and most recently, his magnum opus, Radicals in the Barrio, Magonistas, Socialists, Wobblies, and Communists, in the Mexican-American working class, available now from Haymarket Press. Welcome, Justin. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you, man. Thank you so much. So a little background on how I found Justin. Um, I saw him give a very good talk 
at the socialism conference that I attended this past summer in Chicago. Um, came home, didn't really think about it for a while, and then rediscovered him via his sick, sick takedown of Angela Nagel's bad immigration take that everyone was kind of getting mad about, but nobody was really uh, digging into the arguments that much until I found his. Um, and it reminded me that this is a topic I've been wanting to do an episode on for a really long time. So I think it worked out pretty well. I really want to emphasize that this is not just about uh, owning Angela Nagel or whatever, right? Because she is not that important and I would be very happy to never have to hear her name again. But unfortunately, these kinds of arguments are certainly making waves in the mainstream discourse right now. And in talking about them and really digging into the history and the theoretical framework behind uh, why they're wrong and we are right, um, I, I really want to arm our anti-fada super soldiers with uh, facts and logic that you can use in any debate, whether you're arguing with obvious bad faith actors like Tucker Carlson, uh, you know, your racist uncle at Christmas or fake friends like Angela Nagel. <laughs> so Excellent. here we go. Let's 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 start it up. So to begin, um, Justin, can you take us through the history a little bit of um, immigration and labor in the U.S.? Uh, I think for for time's sake, we'd really like to focus on the time period since the neoliberal turn of the 80s to uh, present-day Trumpism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, immigration in U.S. history is a very complex uh, thing uh, with a lot of problematic history alongside very progressive and uh, positive developments within the within the working class in this country. But if we go back to uh, the 70s, uh, I think it's, it's important to understand that uh, by the 70s, the, the U.S. Uh, you know, ruling class, the, the political establishment had come to depend heavily on Mexican labor crossing the border. And that labor uh, was essential you know, for both propping up the economy, but also uh, uh, you know, beginning to play a role in terms of uh, the racialization and the criminalization of immigration as a way to segment that labor and to, uh, to keep it isolated from the larger working class. But if we start at the 70s, you know, there's some very interesting research that has, uh, that has been produced that shows that at that particular time in history, uh, while Mexican workers were crossing in larger numbers as quote-unquote undocumented workers, uh, their labor, for the most part, was uh, in the industries in which they worked, was was pretty much in parity with uh, the labor, uh, you know, U.S.-born, uh, quote-unquote, native-born labor. Uh, so there wasn't a, a, a significant uh, difference in terms of how much uh, people got paid based on their citizenship status. Interesting. But but we began to see in the in the late '70s, and you know, ever since, we began to see criminalization of, of Mexican labor and Central American labor increasing, um, you know, through the neoliberal era uh, for various reasons. But the main reason is because uh, that labor, uh, you know, these are people coming from, you know, parts of Mexico and, and Central America that have their own political traditions, they have their own experiences. Uh, and, and, you know, this labor has historically shown to be uh, as, if not more willing to join unions 
to be part of labor actions, to be part of the labor movement. Um, and criminalization tended, tends to increase on par with their active participation in the labor movement. Uh, and so that becomes a function of the state is to uh, increase mechanisms to deprive them of the opportunity, the ability, and ultimately the will to try to be part of the labor movement. So with criminalization, we began to see uh, increasing disparity in terms of pay between uh, quote-unquote undocumented labor and, and citizen uh, labor. And so citizenship itself, uh, and more specifically, uh, the criminalization of immigration becomes a mechanism by which there can be increased exploitation and super-exploitation of, uh, of immigrant labor, starting with... Uh, the uh, increasing uh, increasing of, of the of the capacity for employers to fire or at least police uh, and threaten to fire undocumented workers that comes about in the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, which uh, required that workers now show documentation and empowered employers to fire those who did not provide it. Uh, but really, what that did was allowed employers to begin to police their their own workforces. It also increased uh, through the early 1990s with the uh, implementation of the Operation Gatekeeper uh, and Operation Hold the Line, which basically is the building up of uh, the militarized borders. Uh, and then we see it increasing ever since in various forms. Um, and with the criminalization of immigrant labor, again, we see this widening gap between what uh, within the same industries where immigrants work between them and citizen um, citizen labor, um, and this has become a very profitable, uh, you know, uh, development for, for capital. And again, uh, making it much harder for workers to be organized, immigrant workers to be organized, much uh, harder for, for people to actually uh, come together in any capacity uh, because the immigrant repress, repressive apparatus is now so immense and now so visible and, you know, all aspects of, of, of society, you know, from the border to ICE. Mm. Um, and so this is the, the trajectory, you know, and this is, uh, lastly, this has become, there's been, been sort of spin-off uh, industries uh, that have developed in, in the neoliberal economic model, including uh, detention, the detention system, which is largely uh, privatized, uh, you know, and other, and other uh, ways in which uh, immigrant labor is now uh, made more profitable by its vulnerability. That's all really interesting stuff. So essentially what you're trying to tell us in the audience is that um, this uh, demonization and this criminalization of immigrant labor has been part and parcel of the neoliberal project going back to the 70s that tried to radically shift power away from labor and towards capital. That's the, 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 the rubric to, in which to under, understand this. Correct. And, and by criminalizing immigrant labor, an aspect of that is to weaken the capacity for workers to even, you know, maintain unions by making it virtually illegal for undocumented people to join unions, you know, and so that allows for the working class as it grows, as the immigrant section grows, it becomes uh, more and more uh, structured out of, of the labor movement, more and more marginalized from unions. And I think, you know, one, one aspect that also is embedded in the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, which is proved to be a major lesson for the, for the ruling class, uh, for the capitalist class in this society, was that that same act allowed for the legalization, as part of a negotiation, the legalization of over 2.5 million workers. Many of those workers who became legalized, uh, mostly from Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean, 
went on to become uh, union uh, members. Uh, they produced a new generation of union organizers, and that section of the of the of the union movement in this country has been expanding ever since. Whereas the other uh, sectors of the of the labor uh, of the labor movement of the union movement have been in decline. You know, the ruling class has learned this lesson, um, and that proved to be a threat to the other aspect of criminalization. You know, which is you know we can only exploit and make these kind of profits and divide the working class through criminalization. So ever since 1986, there has been no, uh, uh, you know, there's been no attempt to fashion an immigration reform that contains legalization as a component. And so that uh, can explain why the ruling class has moved away from this as a threat to uh, existing labor arrangements, you know, which basically have seen the decline of organized labor and in order to perpetuate that, to prevent further uh, integration of immigrant workers that have come since that uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act was passed in the 1980s. That's super interesting and I think speaks to the kind of ahistorical character of a lot of these uh, right-wing anti-immigration arguments um, that are sort of, I don't even want to call them populist in nature, but, you know, concern trolling on behalf of the workers where they take... Uh, immigrants, quote unquote, illegal status or vulnerability to um, predations of the bosses as this like almost immutable quality about them and not the result of distinct factors and policy steps taken in recent history. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, the election of Trump, or I should say the selection of Trump, um, does not represent a... Uh, a break in this process. Um, it represents an acceleration of it. Uh, but yeah, there there is a recent, a more recent history of the organized uh, working class, the the union movement, um, drawing some conclusions uh, from the 1986 immigration reform and control, like the amnesty aspect of it. The long the long history of the of the uh, the union movement in this country is very problematic. Um, the AFL CIO has largely called for immigration restriction and stood uh, stood with right-wing forces opposing immigration for, you know, for most of its uh, history. But between 1986 and 2000, with the with the, the dramatic and impressive growth of the immigrant-led uh, union movement, um, they finally changed their tune. And in 2000, you know, the AFL-CIO leadership uh, reversed its position and, and, and has since called for the organization of undocumented people and has played a role in supporting uh, the organization of, of immigrant workers for immigrant rights. For instance, in 2006, during the mass marches, the, the strikes, the boycotts, at least 3 million people, May 1st, 2006, you know, the period between April and May of that, of that year, uh, culminating on uh, International Workers Day and May Day, that, uh, you know, the sort of undergirding of that uh, outpouring of immigrant workers and their supporters was facilitated through the unions, through union locals, in, in, in major part. And so, um, the but you know the the problem is is that for various reasons the 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 labor unions have backed off of that more supportive stance, and um, in some cases, um, you know, has largely ignored the situation with uh, you know under Trump, or I should say under Obama and under Trump. Um, and so there continues to be an ambiguity um, in terms of what it what it actually is willing to you know what the organized labor is willing to do to organize undocumented workers. But in those areas, like in the Southwest, Los Angeles, and other places where where the labor movement is the immigrant workers movement, um, you know there are 
there are uh, you know things things going on. There are uh, actions being taken. There are you know efforts to organize locally. For folks who don't know, uh, Justin was referring to the uh, 2006 what was called the Sensenbrenner Bill. And uh, you had uh, a whole bunch of actions culminating in Day Without an Immigrant. That was yeah. essentially the closest we've come to a general strike, I think, in the United States in maybe 70 years. Um, massive protests and then also uh, work stoppages. Um, Justin, on the other side of the coin, because we've talked a lot about the sort of structural and policy changes that are happening in the United States. In the same period, what are the sort of push factors that are happening in Mexico and Central American countries that are causing folks to you know, move from where they uh, had been uh, to come to the United States in order to work? Yeah, so that's a big question. Um, you know, the, the short answer is uh, imperialism. Oh, that's a good answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which has, you know, uh, different manifestations. But, uh, uh, you know... In, in 1994, um, the, uh, the United States, Mexico, and Canada entered into a, a trade agreement, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement. In reality, this was not so much a trade agreement as much as a, an induced reorganization of Mexico's economy um, led by U.S. capital uh, and Canadian capital, which have since thoroughly uh, economically colonized, uh, recolonized Mexico, I should say. Uh, but, you know, it, it was through the age of the ages of uh, debt that uh, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which, you know, uh, has historically been largely controlled by the, the major capitals powers with the United States at the center. It was through debt restructuring that the United States government through the IMF uh, forced Mexico through through this pro uh, through what were called structural adjustment programs. To, to virtually reorganize its economy uh, along uh, neoliberal lines. Mexico had a, uh, uh, what, what was called an economic developmentalist, uh, you know, uh, approach to national development, uh, had a, a significant amount of tariffs um, and constitutional guarantees to protect the economy from foreign domination, going all the way back to the Mexican Revolution when that had happened previously. Uh, but its model of development also failed, um, and so it was... In forced to borrow increasingly uh, from international uh, capital and ultimately it was unsustainable and so in in uh, facing economic crisis in the early 80s it was forced to restructure and the US uh, like I said then used that as a way to um, to to implement uh, the opening up uh, of Mexico Mexico today is now one of the most uh, open economies in the world open in the sense of capital it has the largest number of free trade agreements. Uh, and between between the period in which that was implemented and 1994, in which the, this was all codified in the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, we began to see uh, massive economic displacement. And then uh, between 1994 and the economic crisis of, of 2008, we saw about uh, six to seven million people leave Mexico, um, primarily economically displaced peoples. Um, the same thing was reproduced in Central America and the Caribbean with uh, what's called the DR, the Dominican Republican, the Dominican Republic slash Central American Free Trade Agreement in 2005, which which again reproduced this uh, economic opening. Although these Central American and Caribbean economies are much smaller and more vulnerable, and so that's why we see a staggering of of, of out migration. So in Mexico, it was between 1994 and 2007 uh, in large numbers, and then. Uh, 
with DR CAFTA, we see the uh, the out migration really beginning to, to pick up after the economic crisis, 2010, 2011, um, and what we're seeing today with the the, mig uh, the migrant caravans. So this, uh, what it looked like on the inside was basically a massive privatization of the state-owned sectors of Mex in Mexico and Central America, privatization, uh, mass sell-offs of these industries primarily to foreign capital, the privatization of the land, uh, large swaths of agricultural regions sold off to multinational corporations to produce uh, food that largely is exported back to the United States. Uh, we see the maquiladorization. The maquiladoras are these uh, assembly and production plants that are foreign-owned, uh, that are set up, especially in the, in the, in the regions uh, of Mexico and Central America, where there's the highest uh, rate of unemployment and um, displacement. And so these uh, assembly and production plants basically are, um, you know, modern day sweatshops where they, where they pay workers very, very little, uh, you know, a lot of production is shifted south of the border, uh, you know, to facilitate the cheap, the, you know, exploitation of cheap labor. And in places like Honduras, this is taken even to a new level where, uh, current trade agreements allow not only for these foreign owned corporations to set up these assembly and production plants, but they even allow them to operate as kind of like uh, sovereign zones mm. where um, maquiladora operators, primarily you and in the case of Honduras, it's primarily uh, garment uh, you know, producing corporations, a lot of the, you know, the fashionable trends and clothing and shoes and things like that. Uh, but in Honduras, they, they have these kind of like sovereign zones where, you know, the foreign uh, corporations can basically operate uh, with impunity within these free trade area uh, zones. They can hire their own repressive forces. Uh, basically, rights are suspended in all forms for workers, you know. Uh, and, and so, you know, workers move from displaced regions and displaced sections of the economy into these maquiladoras. That happened in Mexico in, in the 90s. And well, it, you know, it expanded in the 90s and into the early 2000s. But because of the the way that unions are suppressed, because of the levels of violence against workers who try to organize, many workers just bypass these industries and, and, and instead uh, migrate. Justin, on, on top of these sort of um, structural economic changes, there was something, there was a more, as you say, militarized and violent U.S. imperialism in Central America and, um, you know, that region in general, uh, starting in the 80s. I believe a guy, George H.W. Bush, died recently, who may or may not have had some... Uh, <laughs> some influence there. So can you talk a little bit about the political aspect and the military aspect of U.S. intervention and imperialism in uh, that region, in the regions these people are coming from? Yeah, so it it begins, you know, the, the most recent chapter begins uh, during the Reagan years uh, in the 1980s. Um, you know, Central American nations like El Salvador and, and uh, Nicaragua and Guatemala and Honduras, you know, have a long history um in which the U.S. has played a direct role in sustaining uh, dictatorships, toppling uh, unfavorable governments. Uh, you know, corporations uh, play uh, a significant role in, in, in both economic and political operations within these countries, you know, in terms of determining uh, acceptable leaders and uh, whatnot. But in uh, the 1980s specifically, uh, we see... Uh, you know, the protracted uh, struggles of, of people against uh, various types of dictatorships uh, in El Salvador, which is a very small country, um, 
you know, we saw the United States propping up a military dictatorship for most of the 80s and heavily arming a military dictatorship to suppress a, a large uh, a, a rebellion in that country that was largely rooted in the countryside. Um, I think it was something like $2 billion in direct aid was given to suppress a population of less than 7 million people. Uh, and, you know, uh, a, te- you know uh, a brutal civil war that raged over a course of a decade and, um, you know, was highly destructive to the population, the economy, etc. Uh, you know, Nicaragua, the U.S. Su- supported a dictatorship uh, that was in power until it was overthrown in 1979 by the, the Sandinistas, and, you know, which was a popular rebellion against a very brutal dictatorship, a dictatorship that owned like one third of the, uh, of the country, um, a family, the Samosa family nice. owned one third of the country. Uh, and then funded, uh, when, when that dictatorship was overthrown, uh, then funded a counter-revolution uh, refer, uh, known as the Contras, which is like, you know, the word for against, uh, that was, that was uh, created and, and funded by the U.S. government to commit acts of terrorism against the Sandinista government. It was, uh, its operations were based out of Honduras, uh, you know, and, and it was also a very bloody civil war that raged for, for many years with direct U.S. support. So I, the list goes on and on, but uh, there is, there has been, un, you know, uh, incessant um, U.S. interventionism in that region. So the most recent chapter has to do with the quote-unquote war on drugs. Um, ah, yes, and, that thing. We haven't, uh, we haven't won that war yet? It's not like the <laughs> war on terror either? Damn, we're not doing well in these wars. Well, th- some people are definitely winning those wars, ah, um, and that, that's, that's, that's the true. arms industry, the prison industry. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, you know, it, it's important to point out that um, that the United States uh, has set up multiple security arrangements uh, with uh, Mexico and Central America uh, through the ages of the drug war. Um, you know, the uh, Plan Merida, uh, which was a uh, an agreement between the United States and the Mexican government, uh, which was established uh, in, t- in about 205 and then implemented over the next few years, um, allocated $2 billion uh, for the purchasing of military equipment for Mexican law enforcement to ostensibly fight uh, a drug war, you know, an actual war against the cartels. Um, and this this raged from about 2006 uh it's still going on, but it raged for about six years under the presidency of Felipe Calderon, somebody who largely, uh, through the support of Plan Merida and U.S. political support, uh, basically began the process of militarizing uh, Mexican society against the quote-unquote cartels. But in reality, uh, much of this equipment was used to repress popular movements. Uh, the beginning of the enforcement of the southern border uh, uh, with Guatemala to basically police uh, the incoming Central American migrants, you know, a lot, uh, in the model of the Operation Gatekeeper. Uh, and, you know, so over the period of 2006 to 2012, there's been at least 100,000 people killed, another 30 to 50,000 people disappeared in this war um, that has done nothing to curtail the drug trade. And then this was further expanded into Central America in 2010 through something called the the uh, Central American Regional Security Initiative, also providing equipment, military uh, arms, training, technical and logistical support uh, for the Central American governments, uh, like in Honduras, for instance, um, and ultimately allocated over three three quarters of a billion dollars. And so we see uh, what happened in the drug war in Mexico, or the quote-unquote drug war, was that uh, one of the byproducts of this was that it pushed cartels further into Central American 
uh, states, which are uh, much smaller uh, economies and more uh, weaker in, in infrastructures and weaker, um, you know, state apparatus. They have weaker uh, states, um, and so the extent of penetration of cartels into the highest ranks of the government um, and the use of military weapons coming from the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis these trade agreements, I mean, these security agreements, has led to, uh, you know, some of these countries, specific, specifically Honduras, becoming the most violent and dangerous, uh, you know, for, for the common people, um, both combining repression against political opponents. So Honduras, for instance, and, in, you know, today has, uh, it's the murder capital of the world. It's the most deadly place to be a, an, a, a human rights or environmental or social justice activist. Uh, so there's political repression, and then there's the, uh, the you know, the increase of crime that is that is penetrated so far into the government. For instance, the, the current government and the, excuse me, the current president and the one that preceded him, both who were installed after the overthrow of the democratically elected government in that country, the last two presidents have had uh, immediate family members who have been recently arrested for uh, drug smuggling into the United States. Mm. So, uh so the, the 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 level of violence uh, coming out of this process, um, underwritten by U.S. tax dollars, you know, has uh, played a significant role in driving people out of that country in desperate, you know, in, in desperation of, of saving themselves, their children, et cetera. So it's really a crisis scenario. But of course, none of this is going to be analyzed as part of the U.S. discourse on migration because um, because it's still a very profitable arrangement. So. So we are the losers and, and you know, the, the people who make profit off of these arrangements are the winners. So that's that's the narrative that doesn't get discussed uh, as part of this. Yeah. And the Honduran coup, uh, let me remind folks, was legitimized with the help of our feminist queen, Hillary Clinton, who, depending who you talk to, is an advocate for open borders slash the abolition of the nation state or a nativist uh, immigrant hater. I actually saw the daughter of Berta Carceres speak at the uh, DNC in 2016. Uh, her mother was an indigenous uh, rights and land uh, environmental activist in Honduras who was murdered in this coup under very suspicious circumstances. And it was really, uh, it, it just made me really want to drive a stake through the heart of anyone who thinks that Hillary Clinton is empowering for women. In she any spoke way, shape, at or the form. DNC? Well, not at the actual DNC. Outside but the DNC. It was, it, yeah, it was like a socialist event put yeah, on in a Quaker meeting <laughs> house sense. with like yeah. Jill Stein and shit. But right. um, m moving along to, I think that's a lot of really good history. Um, talk about something that you mentioned earlier, which is the racialization of immigration policy. Because a lot of the arguments that you hear from, you know, the Tucker Carlson's of the world, they say uh, race has nothing to do with this. Uh, it's about protecting the uh, American worker. And they often use uh, people of color as kind of a shield when they're like, oh, well, black workers suffer the most under this uh, alleged attack on unions on the part of immigrants. So, like, where does the racialization come in? Yeah, that's like the all lives matter argument, right? Right. Exactly. Um, so. Uh, I live right on the San Diego-Tijuana border. Uh, I could see at night uh, Tijuana out my window. Um, and, you know, if, if you look at the structure of enforcement of immigration, it's highly, it's highly concentrated on people coming from south of the border. 
Uh, we have, uh, you know, the, the U.S. border is highly, the U.S.-Mexico border is highly militarized. There are 600 uh, actual miles of physical barrier, uh, ranging from triple fences, uh, you know, to um, drone, uh, you know, drone surveillance. Uh, the, the Border Patrol has, uh, you know, there's over 20,000 agents. 80, over 80 percent of all of our border enforcement is on the southern border between the United States and Mexico, and less than 20% is on the northern border between the U.S. and Canada. And the apparatus of enforcement extends into the interior, all emanating from that southern border. So uh, San Diego has a, uh, San Diego County has a ring of, of interior checkpoints that extends, you know, from where I live near the coast all the way into the, in the interior of the county. So anybody coming through any of the major freeways or interstates uh, moving on a north-south axis uh, from the border will have to go through a series of checkpoints that are uh, that racially profile. This is not an accusation. This is something codified in law in which the, the racial uh, profiling in terms of immigration enforcement has been ruled uh, constitutional, going back to uh, decisions made in 1975 and 76 that linked racial profiling to national security. If you drive out off the eight interstate, which extends across the southwest from California to, to Texas and, and beyond, again, you'll you'll constantly come into contact with check, uh, Border Patrol checkpoints. They have fixed checkpoints. They have roving checkpoints. Um, if you look at uh, how immigration is enforced in the interior, uh, ICE uh, operations, which extend through the 50 states um, now, uh, thank, you know, thank, thanks to the Obama administration, which uh, dramatically ramped up interior enforcement uh, in terms of budgetary allocations during his uh, administration. And so ICE operations are, are largely conducted in uh, brown communities, Latino communities, uh, whether it be uh, in, you know, a place like California or, you know, uh, Idaho or Vermont. And, you know, so there's a very racialized component in terms of how enforcement plays out. Um, and this, you know, you can look at immigration detention, you know, to understand, you know, that the overwhelming majority of people in immigration detention are going to be from uh, Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean, uh, African nations. And, you know, that's part of the immigrant population. But we, we have, for instance, a significant uh, portion of undocumented people who are not of Central American, African or Caribbean or Mexican descent or Chinese descent, but actually are you know, from Europe or uh, uh, places like Canada, Australia, etc. Uh, but there's there's very little uh, in terms of the how that apparatus is designed to to identify this population. So these are usually referred to as visa overstays, people who come into the country through some visa process um, and then just stay and never leave. So um, I'm not an advocate for them being deported. I'm not an advocate for them even being. Um, Track down, but it, but merely to illustrate that the immigration enforcement uh, apparatus is not as interested in those people. Right, right. It's funny you say that uh, European visa overstays. When I worked in the uh, bar and restaurant industry in New York City, uh, all of the uh, young French people that I worked with were all also uh, quote unquote illegal or undocumented immigrants. But uh, not the same sort of uh, scariness when you're when you're talking uh, about a white French person. So um, branching off of um, this really great history um, and theoretical apparatus that you've given us, it seems like the concept of even uh, the U.S. working class, you know, what that means, has been utilized in some um, 
very disingenuous and, and very dangerous ways. You address this a bit in uh, the case against the case against open borders uh, in Socialist Worker, but can you kind of expand uh, our conception or even just kind of, how should I say, um, tighten our conception of what the uh, working class is because it could be used as a way to say just white workers, you know, right. or it could, uh, or just native workers. And even uh, those neoliberals like the Clintons uh, would say that, oh, when you're talking about the working class, you're excluding uh, people of color and immigrants and so forth. Right. What do we mean when we say working class? Well, that, that's a, that's a big, a big issue or a big concept, I should say in, in the United States, because we have, you know, uh, different aspects of what the working class is. We have the transnational working class. Mm. We have the undocumented working class. We have the naturalized section of the working class. We have, you know, citizen born citizen uh, workers who were born in the U.S. We have birthright citizenship workers who are the uh, first generation citizens in their family. So it's, you know, because of immigrations uh, and because of the way the global economy is structured, those two factors have you know, meant that, you know, there is not one type of working class person. Mm. And so official statistics would say something like, uh, you know, the lowest estimate I would, uh, I've seen would be like 17% of the workforce is not born in the United States. After, you know, doing some more research, I would put that perhaps closer to 30% because there's a lot of sections of the transnational working class that are not counted for. So mm. for instance, uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people cross the Mexican border to work in the U.S. every day and then return home. You know, we have refugee and asylum, uh, asylees, uh, refugee, people who come in through refugee status or, or granted asylum that typically will be in the working class. We have visa holders, you know, every, er, everywhere from skilled, you know, quote unquote skilled workers in the tech industry to, you know, farm workers, which I believe is highly skilled. You know, it's hard to really draw a line between, you know, the a, a native born citizen working class and a foreign-born immigrant working class uh, because there's also overlap. Even though we have a highly structured economy that has created these low-tier wage sectors uh, that are largely populated with undocumented uh, workers, there's still a lot of interface uh, uh, within the economy where immigrant and citizen-born workers... uh, And then there's mixed status, right, where where there's families that have both citizen and... Uh, immigrant workers. But I, I think it's important to extend this globally because there are workers in Honduras who work for U.S. corporations mm. who are part of a of a sort of transnational assembly line that are basically working with U.S. workers, you know, in the same, you know, as part of the same sort of uh, uh, transnational network, but of course are not living in the U.S. or living in Honduras. Right. I thought that was a very, yeah. very powerful point yeah, in your that, piece. That really speaks to the ridiculousness of even trying to define the working class within one nation state when capital has free reign over the globe, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's a point that was really important in your piece and also in the, the viewpoint piece about the caravan, just stressing that we need to start thinking about the Central American people and people around the world as being part of the same working class that we are a part of. And that's how we're going to uh, start breaking down some of these borders of core and periphery and start thinking about, you know, international socialism instead of these more populist concepts of like national sovereignty socialism or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of examples. I'll give one. This was in the 1990s. uh, uh, the maquiladoras, uh, there's in Mexico. There's about uh, it fluctuates, but there's about 2,800 of them, and 
while most of them, uh, upwards of 80% of them are uh, U.S. owned or U.S. subsidiaries, uh, there's also Asian and European capital um, invested there. And uh, Hyundai uh, uh, workers um, who were working in, in Tijuana in a, in a auto, you know, uh, in, in a plant associated with auto production, um, tried to organize a union basically to collectively bargain in, you know, in, in the, this was in the 90s. Um, and were engaged in a prolonged struggle with the uh, both the company and the government because the the Mexican government or ha, you know has up up to this point um, worked to support uh, the capitalists to maintain union free uh, you know uh, workshops and so anytime a worker has to wants to try to collectively bargain they're going against not just the employer but the local and historically the federal government and that's one of the ways that this industry is maintained. It's maintained as a union-free, uh, you know, these are union-free uh, zones. And, with, you know, in Mexico, they have, like, these fake unions, which basically will um, work with the employer. And in many cases, the workers won't even know that they're in a union, but these these are basically anti-union unions, where they, where they prevent unions from being organized, because if workers try to organize a union, they'll say, oh, you're already covered by a union, and that union's already recognized by the government. Yeah, I was reading about that in my socialist feminist reading group, actually. They were heavily tied with the PRI, the ruling party, right? Yes. Sorry, I, I actually read about a group of women workers in the Maquila Zone who had to organize not only against their employer, but against the union that was allegedly representing them. Right, exactly. So on the topic of uh, borders and capitalism, a lot of people treat leftists like we're crazy for wanting to open the borders to humans and eventually, you know, abolish the nation state altogether, um, as well as proclaiming that all forms of nationalism are bad and necessarily lead in some very regressive directions. Um, because I think it's not always a given, especially for people who might just be getting into this stuff. Do you want to explicate the connection uh, a little bit more between the nation state and global capitalism, as well as why abolishing borders is necessary to the long-term socialist project? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's first of all important to point out that there are open borders for capital. There are open borders for wealthy people. There are open borders for people, generally speaking, in rich nations in terms of moving across borders to other nations. Uh, and if you actually study the function of borders, especially the way we've come to understand them in the last you know, uh, two decades uh, internationally, is that they're largely borders that exist for workers and uh, people from certain regions. Uh, people, you know, that have certain characteristics, uh, such as uh, religion or, or, you know, racial characteristics. So, in, in other words, the borders exist only for some people, so, uh, and not others. And so, um, we have to ask ourselves, why is it structured that way? And uh, the only way to really understand it is to look at the case uh, of how borders uh, impact or, uh, labor, labor's organized uh, capacity to organize, uh, and the way that that structure serves capital. So I live in San Diego, again, uh, right on the border. Uh, for me to go into Mexico, it's fairly simple. It's becoming more difficult because part of the security agreements with Mexico has required that they begin to implement similar types of restrictions, uh, in this case, towards Central Americans, but also generally more border infrastructure. And so it takes uh, you know a few minutes for me to cross the border. 
uh, in the early 90s, uh, when I first came to this region, I, I crossed through a, like a, what do they call them, those rotating gates. <laughs> that was my, that was the visa. All I needed was to be able to push a gate open and I could go into, into, into mm. Mexico. But if you come across the other direction, even if you're a U.S. citizen, it's, it, it becomes very difficult. U.S. citizens uh, tend to have to wait unless you can afford these fast passes, which require money and, uh, you know, you have to go through background checks and whatnot. But but the point is, is that the border really has two different functions. One is not stopping people from entering into Mexico, but slowing down and in many cases, stopping people from crossing back. So there's no there's virtually no means for Mexican working class people to cross the border into the United States. There is no. Uh, there is no way for them to do that legally. Uh, there is no visa category. There is uh, there is no asylum status they could get. They could, there's no um, there's no line to get into. And so so really, the border functions to contain Mexican labor. But then that begs the question as to why do we have several million undocumented Mexican workers in our economy? Mm. Undocumented workers uh, are the most most gainfully employed section of the, of the work, working class. Uh, primarily because they only migrate to work. And since they're disqualified from most, uh, undocumented workers are disqualified from most categories of welfare, there's no benefit to being here without working. And so if you if you follow the system all the way, you know, all the way through the structures, then you find that um, the border then serves the purpose of categorizing somebody as quote-unquote illegal, which then gives the employer near absolute control uh, over their labor. Mm. Yeah, because I, I think in the Nagel piece, she really paints these employers as uh, benefiting from the alleged uh, free movement of people over borders when it seems very apparent from our conversation that they're actually benefiting from the criminalization of them, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly the point. If, if you, I talk about it in the book, No One's Illegal, there's many many cases where employers uh, will call immigration enforcement on themselves when their workers try to organize unions or right. when their workers are engaging in any kind of labor action. Right. Uh, you know, and it's because the enforcement apparatus uh, for employers is virtually non-existent and it's designed that way. Mm. So, uh, so employers can use that to their advantage. And, and the thing about, about that under capitalism is that it rewards the, the most unscrupulous. And the more profitable it becomes to police your, your workers this way, the more advantage you'll have over your competitors. So, so this has contributed to a normalization of, of repression of workers at the point of production, of immigrant workers at the point of production, because that's the trend. And, and therefore, we see that leveraging down wages in certain industries that are wholly dependent on undocumented workers for that purpose. Mm. But there have been efforts in the last several iterations of immigration, quote-unquote immigration reform, coming out of uh, you know, the, the two po political parties in the United States, have basically looked at extending the use of immigrant labor into other sectors of the economy that they haven't been uh, used in before through various types of uh, guest worker programs. Mm. Uh, guest worker programs meaning you know people who can come in but cannot cannot even don't have freedom of movement they come in as contract laborers indentured almost right to one company absolutely that's the whole history i mean from the bracero program from contract labor in the 19th century uh to the bracero program in the middle 20th century to uh the visa visa workers and you know guest workers in the modern context 
this has this is like the ideal form of labor because it's it, it's even preferable to undocumented labor because you know uh, up until the last few years when we see the the increasing use of ice uh, to target you know uh, undocumented people even undocumented people could sort of move they could leave a, a place where they worked and to look for another job if they didn't like it yeah. uh, or if they had opportunities to do so but you know this we're moving in the direction of these kind of workers who don't have the right to move they're bound to an employer the employer has the right to send them away if they don't want them so so these forms of labor control are are what has become normalized, you know, both in conjunction with increased ICE enforcement, but also the the, the rehabilitation of the Bracero into the new guest worker programs. These are the trends that um, you know uh, are, are deepening, and that's the that's the trajectory of U.S. immigration politics. Uh, it was interesting that you mentioned these uh, reforms that are taken for granted now. That in many ways. Uh, almost in all ways, ultimately benefit uh, capital and are not actually humane, uh, nor are they something that socialists will be fighting for. When Jamie and I, a couple weeks ago, were in Mexico, um, Obrador, uh, AMLO, the new president of Mexico, and Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn of Britain, uh, were meeting to kind of, you know, talk about what sort of international global policies they'd be interested. Bernie Sanders has recently come out with some sort of more leftish type uh, talk about what he would do, you know, as a, a presidential candidate. And Yanis Varoufakis, of course, is running around Europe right now trying to turn uh, the horror show that is the European Union into something more progressive. So there's this sense right now, as we look towards the potentials for the future, um, that, you know, social Democrats, progressives uh, are trying to, it seems like, create some sort of progressive international uh, that I suppose would arise, you know, in all these different individual nation states, uh, but somehow, you know, institutionally, uh, have the ability to ameliorate the worst effects of neoliberal globalization. We're somewhat electorally skeptical uh, on this podcast. So uh, what do you think about this conception of a progressive international? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, let me start by saying that it, it appears that there are now two, two new attempts at inter international, quote-unquote internationalism in response to the far-right internationalism that we see taking place. Um, the one that scares me the most is the Clintonian internationalism, which mm. uh, I don't know, uh, uh, you know exactly uh, what it what it would be called. Maybe the the centrist uh, international, but globalism. Uh, but, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I believe yeah. it's called globalism. Right. So you know, a few weeks ago, you know, Clinton joined with uh, Tony Blair, mm. right, uh, and uh, former Italian leader uh, Matteo Renzi. And they did this kind of like, uh, you know, sort of political publicity tour for their brand of, you know, resistance to the far right. And that included uh, saying, well, in order to preempt the further growth of the far right, we have to take, uh, you know, a, a part of their program and become increasingly anti-immigrant. And that that is going to peel away the, the far right, who is only really attracted to to them because they have this anti-immigrant platform. Well, that is a recipe for the acceleration of fascism on 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 an international scale, oh and God, you know yeah. the this this has repeated itself uh, historically. So I won't go into that. But teach uh, the fascists to code. Yeah, let's just let's trust uh, Blair. Let's trust Blair and Clinton to triangulate their way out of this mess. Uh, I'm sure right. it went well with the economy. I'm sure it'll go great with uh, migration. But go on. Right. So, um, you know, it, it that that in and of itself shows the bankruptcy. You know, of, of uh, you know 
liberal nationalist capitalism. You know, I don't know what what formulation to make out of that, but but that also shows how quickly you know people on the center and center left, because of you know because of being basically anchored to capitalism and the interests of the ruling class, capitalist class, how without a sort of foundation, you know, that can look beyond what's best for capital, you know, at this particular moment. I mean, you know, we have to be clear that the, the Clinton political brand is has been, you know, moving traditional liberalism as far to the right as possible. And, and the Clintons have played a significant role in the political project of increasing immigration repression at home. So how about um, this sort of leftward turn, leftish turn, I should say, of, of the Corbins and the Bernies of the world? Do you see any uh, sort of hope in that uh, that project? Well, uh, you know, I, I think it still remains to be seen exactly what's being presented. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, has taken pretty bad positions, although during the election electoral campaign, you know, he he tried to make up for that by talking, giving a platform to und- undocumented uh, rights activists within his campaign. You know, he has taken some positions that have basically aligned him with uh, the positions of Nagel. You know, I wouldn't put them two in the same category. Bernie Nagel, twenty twenty. For the sake of yeah. argument, you know, you know, recently he made a comment about the caravan that he believes that not all of them have a legitimate claim to asylum, and it's not clear to me you know, why he wouldn't make, you know, what was the purpose of making that point except to, to try to keep a, a foothold, you know, in the, in the, the sort of orbit of democratic politics. Mm. I think it's, I think it's hopeful that there is an attempt by people who, you know, do have a left, a left wing orientation to begin to come together and discuss these things. But I don't think the solution is, is going to necessarily come, you know, from, uh, you know, from some kind of internationalist orientation that is going to be, you know, led by politicos of the center left, um, unless it's coupled with, with this organizing of movements um, for immigrant solidarity, you know, that can basically articulate, you know, a left critique of, of, of what actually is happening and how it serves capitalism. So, for instance, it is a positive development that the democratic socialists who have recently won office, you know, uh, you know, in the last election cycle, um, have, arti- you know, have amplified the, the sort of demand of abolish ICE, uh, you know, that's a positive development because it creates space to talk about, you know, uh, an actual left-wing demand, which mm. was, is critical to the to support, you know, the rights of immigrant workers and, you know, in many ways a precondition for labor rights in this country, you know, the abolition of ICE, which is a, you know, it's like the overseer of the plantation, you know, that's the, the new manifestation of, you know, of the, you know, of, of the function, you know, of repressing uh, labor. So it's positive that that you know these things are have reached a sort of you know larger platform, but they reflect the fact that there has been a grassroots campaign. It seems to have stalled, but you know for several months, you know there were people engaging in uh, occupations of ice off uh, ice stations in different parts of the country. You know, and and to me, that's where that impetus really came from, right? Mm. To 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 begin to see that there is, uh, you know, there is a, a base in society that that can be organized that, you know, understands or at least is is sympathetic to the idea that immigrant repression, even, you know, in its most severe um, and brutal forms, you know, is is a threat and dangerous. But we also see the limitations of the electoral arena, right, where um, not democratic socialists, but quote unquote liberal Democrats, um, you know, beginning to, you know, sort of ape the, the demand, but then t- changing into something else. So mm-hmm. you have, 
Kirsten Gillibrand. You have you know people across the sort of traditional democratic spectrum saying instead of saying abolish ice, it's like uh, you know we we need to rethink ice and mm, maybe yeah. reimagine it and right. repurpose it and things like that. Yeah, and, yeah or replace it with the DHS like uh, AOC wants to do, right? Right there you right. go. So I guess that there's you know inherent in that question I asked was that there's this seeming contradiction, right, where you've got these politicians in these individual nation states with borders. Um, and but a lot of folks are looking to them to deal with an international issue of an international working class in a, in a very top down way, in a very right? top down way. So so you're arguing that that we need to build this movement ourselves, right? Well, I think it, it can only exist uh, as something that is originated from below. Right. By and, ourselves, I and, meant working class people and socialists. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. Podcasters. Yes. Um, and podcasters. Yes. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think, I think uh, the immigrant, the migrant and immigrant working class is the starting point. So if you look at the, the people on the Exodus caravan from, uh, from Central America, you know, like if, if you, have the chance to hear interviews or talk to them. I'm in, you know, in, in, this, in a place where I can interact and, and, and dialogue, uh, you know, directly. Uh, the level of political sophistication, you know, is impressive. Um, you know, people have a very profound understanding of their situation and what caused it and what, what solutions um, they're looking for. I mean, obviously people want asylum and that's the most immediate demand that they should be let in. Um, but it's also clear that, like, and, and this is something I've talked about extensively in my writings, is that immigrants aren't blank slates. They are people who tend to be more politicized and have uh, a deeper understanding of, you know, the way global capitalism functions, um, and therefore are more likely to be supportive of, of social movements uh, in their own interests and in, in the interests of labor as a whole, generally, right? And that's one of the functions of immigrant repression, isn't, isn't just to to suppress their labor, it's to also um, prevent the political, you know, into their political integration into our society. Um, and that's, you know, de deportation is, is a very uh, political tool. It has been in the history of this country. You know, um, under Trump, we see ICE is targeting political activists, undocumented political activists around the country at, at a higher scale than we've seen, you know, since the 1950s, during the Cold War. Uh, so I think it's a number of factors, but I think it, it starts in terms of like, you know, building an alternative, uh, you know, to the to the right wing and, and to the way global capitalism is, you know, creating millions of dis displaced people. The alternative starts with the, the displaced people themselves, their integration and their uh, connection to the larger working class and to the left and how social movements can, you know, uh, can tie together various aspects, uh, you know, in order to advance the cause of the whole uh, working class. But I think, you know, the recent history of the United States shows, the, he the recent history of the labor movement at least shows that, um, and I think there's a larger history here that is cyclical, but the most recent one shows that the way forward for working people against the conditions that are leading to the deterioration of wages, standard of living, uh, you know, basic democracy is tied, you know, that that is tied to the rights of immigrants. And, and, and so, you know, the growth of the union movement as the force, you know, as our concentrated um, force that can confront and, and confront capital and, you know, actually win, uh, win struggle, you know, is, is all these things are bound up together. Hell yeah. I mean, I, I hear a lot of people saying that, oh, demands like uh, abolish ICE or immigrant rights or whatever 
are bad because they're not uh, universal demands, right? These are some class reductionists who think stuff like Medicare for all is much more effective at uniting the working class. But these demands are only particular if you look at them in a very myopic way, right? Because the demand that um, nobody be uh, criminalized for crossing a border is a universal one. It, it just happens to be affecting a certain group of people right now. So it seems like very short-sighted on the part of uh, the social cer- certain segments of the social democratic left. Yes, absolutely. So going forward, I mean, that was that was a very rousing call to action. I basically have nothing to add. But um, how how does our movement go beyond our own borders? Um, I, I'm remembering an example that you probably know in much greater detail. But um, Tucker Carlson likes to bring up Cesar Chavez and how he was opposed to both. I mean, he doesn't mention this part, but he was opposed to both legal and illegal immigration um, at a certain point in his life. And he says, oh, look at Cesar Chavez. He was how could a Mexican be racist? Clearly, he was just doing what was smart for uh, for labor. But then, you know, I I looked a little further into that. And it turns out that there were other organizers who thought he was wrong about that and actually Uh uh, organized much more effectively by going to Mexico and talking to people before they even came here and had some pretty big wins from doing that. So, like, uh-huh. w- what what does that look like going forward? Um, are there examples you can point to in the past or things that are happening right now? Um, h- how are we going to unite the workers of the world so that we can lose our chance? Yeah, very good question. So um, let me just say that I, I'm, I'm not familiar with one single strike in agriculture that was ever won because the border patrol played a role. Uh, you know, there's never been a strike that is won because the police were called in. You know, uh, you know the state has no interest in 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 serving uh, the you know the strengthening of the working class through its through its efforts to organize itself. So I, I think this idea that comes out in Nagel's uh, article that you know, the labor movement has been at its strongest when it's been the most restrictionist is actually you know it's the opposite in history. There are there are her she can't provide you know examples to support this narrative except to, to cherry pick you know decontextualized statements um, but and usually those are wrong and usually those are you know inaccurate yeah well Marx um, would have been kicked out of the left today you know yeah, according to her yeah yeah that was quite a that was quite a stretch uh, <laughs> of of Marx but um you know I, I think uh, if we look at the the farm workers movement we can start by saying where is it right now. Um, and it doesn't exist, except there are there are some new bright spots of farm worker organizing, and it reflects a transnational approach. So, for instance, uh, in 2015, uh, there was quite possibly and probably the largest agricultural strike in Mexican history. It took place about 300 miles south of the border, south of Tijuana. Uh, and it was in a place called the Valley of San Quintin, which in the neoliberal era has uh, become a massive agro-industrial export region, primarily serving, uh, facilitated by and serving U.S. corporations. And so uh, upwards of 70,000 workers uh, work in this, you know, this several hundred square mile region, uh, and they pick berries and other, and other fruits, uh, you know, to, to basically serve the global market. In 2015, 
left-wing groups, uh, socialist groups that had a community base uh, throughout Baja California, go all the way to Oaxaca because many of the Mexico's uh, migrant farm workers are from the southern region, mostly indigenous people, uh, and a lot of them from Oaxaca because Oaxaca has been one of the the most sort of recent hard-hit areas of, of North American Free Trade Agreement. Many of the traditional indigenous communities have been displaced over the last 20 years. Um, and so they have like, you know, uh, entered into the migrant, uh, stream. And so, uh, this area of, of San Quintin witnessed the strike of up, upwards of 30,000 workers who were organized not by an existing union, but by, you know, community-based groups. Um, and they, they won, they, they won oh, their yeah. strike and they formed a, an, they formed a, uh, an independent union that is now organizing in several states of, uh, of Mexico. Uh, in October of 2017, an extension of this migratory group of indigenous Mexican farm workers also organized uh, for three years, starting even before the one in San Quintin, they organized for three years to win a, a, a union contract in the state of Washington against uh, another multinational corporation tied to the same industry as the one in San, as the ones in San Quintin and they won the strike in October 2017 they're also indigenous uh, migrant farm workers from Mexico so this is this is the new farm worker movement and it's now since winning in October they have a union contract they're now trying to organize in other communities you know in in the Pacific Northwest and, and most recently they've even supported farm workers as far away as Texas so there is this kind of transnational, farm worker movement that is in its early stages. Um, and I contrast that to what happened with the, you know, the, the farm worker movement uh, led by the United F uh, Farm Workers. I won't go too much into that, except to say that uh, it's true that the strategy of, of basically trying to use the border and immigration enforcement uh, to win strikes, it, it was one that was only embraced uh, under certain circumstances, one circumstance being that many of the socialists and radicals that had been part of organizing the UFW uh, were basically driven out. And this occurred in the context of, of an increasing alliance between the United Farm Workers and the California Democratic Party, especially mm. uh, with the support of then-Governor Jerry Brown, yeah. who basically um, encouraged the union to serve more as an auxiliary for getting the Democratic Party in power and then passing reforms through the through the legislature. And it's in this context that we see uh, a moving away of the bottom-up strategies that had made the UFW so effective to begin with, the, the sort of door-to-door -door organizing, the building of solidarity campaigns, uh, secondary types of actions such as uh, boycotts, um, you know, things that had really uh, led to uh, the UFW becoming a movement. And when, when those strategies were ultimately you know sort of ended and uh the le you know the sort of left wing of the uh of the leadership driven out and the democratic party strategy became employed that's when we began to see more of these top-down attempts to win strikes uh using you know using uh methods that proved to be you know failing and so by by caught by basically uh calling the then ins to, to try to round up uh, undocumented workers that were brought in because the bosses, that's exactly what immigration enforcement is used for, is to basically say we can bring in these workers who are undocumented and knowing full well that the workforce would be divided if the union called in the INS, 
And that's the exact opposite strategy. Instead of saying, you know, to the workers who were undocumented crossing the picket lines, we want you to join the union too, and we'll all work together to defend all the workers in this work camp. You know, they 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 fell into the trap of, of allowing the, the bosses to then divide, um, you know, uh, the existing workforce from the undocumented. This is a story that has played out through history. I document it significantly in, in the book Radicals in the Barrio and how workers in previous generations, how the left overcame this. But in this case, it you know, it failed. And so when the strikes failed, um, and when strikes became even less of a strategy, uh, and the next generation of farm workers that were brought in were, uh, uh, you know, again, undocumented, um, you know, people knew. People knew that the UFW uh, didn't support farm work, uh, undocumented farm workers. So they, they rejected the union, understandably. Uh, and so these these contributed to the end of the, of the United Farm Workers, which is just a shell. It's really uh, kind of a, a lobbying uh, machine now that, uh, covers, you know, last I checked, you know, less than 2% of the farm workers have contracts under the UFW. So it's, you know, but, but every election cycle, you know, you'll see people like, uh, you know, the, the sort of descendants of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta will be on the, the circuit, you know, um, pushing uh, for Democratic Party candidates. So this is the kind of legacy of that, you know, but I counterpose it to the transnational working class uh, movement that we see developing, you know, uh, in the last few years to show that, you know, there's no way to go, there's no way that that strategy worked then, and that there's no way it could work now, because the working class that's in agriculture is transnational. And, you know, we need, we need to actually, you know, build this understanding into the labor struggles of today. I think the seeds have been planted with, with the United, you know, with the AFL-CIO moving away from its anti-immigrant uh, perspective, but but there's still a huge political vacuum, you know, um, created by the fact that the that the much of the AFL-CIO, much of the union leadership, is still uh, still looks to the Democratic Party, you know, as the way to advance workers' rights in this country, and which puts it in a in in the position of of supporting immigrants on paper, but supporting anti-immigrant um, politics in practice. Yeah, and one thing you pointed out in your article that I I didn't really think of before is that. Uh, this idea that working class people are, are against immigrants is just not true, uh, and you, you you have some polling stats for that. And also, it reminds me, I saw the uh, debate between the, the two Senate candidates in, in Mississippi. Uh, I don't remember their names off the top of my head. Um, but when, it, when the question of immigrant farm work came up, they both agreed that they, there should be immigrant farm labor, that it's essential, and that um, produce would rot on the vine if, if they didn't have it. So the the idea that some uh, you know like sovereigntist populist leftists say that normal people don't like immigration is just not true. Everybody recognizes it as at least economically essential. Yeah, you know that's the interesting kind of semantic trick that uh, uh, Nagel and others others uh, use to, to to support immigration restriction, as they say that capital is in support of open borders, and that is. That is completely belied by reality, right? Um, the fact that we have, you know, one of the most massive, if not the most massive, immigrant rep repressive apparatus in the world, you know, um, you know, is 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 demonstrative of the fact that the capitalist class does not like open borders. They like open borders for capital, uh, but it's true that capital wants labor. That's absolutely true. They want immigrant labor. They just don't want free immigrant labor that has rights. That is that is socially and politically and economically integrated they want contained controlled uh subjugated labor 
uh, and you know, and um, agriculture is the most obvious, you know, because there's literally because of the far right's push uh, in places like Georgia and Arizona, you know, to to push so far, you know, through the Republican Party against uh, immigrants that it has led, you know, m- many undocumented immigrants and other and, and immigrants in general to flee the state out of fear of you know violence, you know, repression and violence has led to pushback against, you know, uh, the more uh, sort of capital-minded or, you know, those more more subservient to the direct interests of capital to say, you know, we don't want to go that far. We don't want to go so far that we actually uh, chase out labor, chase out the, the immigrant workers that we want to profit off of. Uh, but this is where we've ended up in, in the sort of immigrant uh, immig- immigration discourse is that the, the right wing, the far right wing, uh, I would say the white nationalist conception of uh, enforcement through attrition has become normalized and enforcement through attrition is actually uh, an alternative to what you know the neo-nazis would want right which is uh people to be put in camps or deported altogether that's just not possible you know under the current status you know which capital exploits uh, immigrant labor but the next phase is that we we make repression at all points so intense that people uh you know, theoretically uh, self-deport, which of course uh, isn't doesn't happen and isn't realistic. But instead, what it does is it if you if you increase repression at all points, then people uh, self-segregate and they well it, they conform to this and, and they stay in the shadows. Um, you know, and that's the the kind of uh, ideal, right? And that's that's why our immigration quote-unquote immigration system has functioned without a reform because the enforcement aspect. Has become so entrenched and universal, and so much a, a pillar of the way capitalist accumulation occurs now, that this is the norm, and and this is acceptable, and and this is why we haven't seen a, a, a any kind of real reform because there's no appetite for it uh, in the ruling class. But yeah, but that they want that labor. Um, open borders, uh, on the other hand, you know, from the left would mean dismantling the repressive apparatus. Of immigrant labor as a precondition to moving forward as labor as the working class in this country people cross borders to, you know for the most part to work um, and if you if you actually dismantle the repressive apparatus what would happen would be that people would immediately change jobs or demand higher wages or join unions they would begin to vote they would begin to integrate socially and politically um, and we would we would see uh, one of the greatest upsurges in working class history in this country that we've ever seen. Uh, and that's exactly why uh, the open borders of the left, which is basically uh, dismantling the repressive apparatus and giving full rights to, to to migrant workers, you know, could be the beginning of the end of capitalism, you know, as, as we understand it. And so therefore, uh, you know, the capitalist class is firmly against it. And people like uh, Angela Nagel are basically in the business of selling a ruling class perspective uh, of immigrant repression by by faking uh, faking left, but ultimately aligning themselves with the status quo. Um, and that's uh, a reflection of how liberal politics, you know, especially in a time of ideological crisis, cannot actually uh, create an independent analysis, uh, you know, that that could be used against capital. It can only work within the constructs uh, and confines of, ca- of capitalist uh, ideology. It's at its weakest and it has to align, you know, it aligns itself with the right. 
dead ass. <laughs> Man, uh, you, you had us at destroying yeah, capitalism. You can't see us right now, but when you said destroy capitalism, everybody's faces just lit up like Christmas trees with joy oh, in the that's studio. That's how you do it? <laughs> I, I, I think that's You're a really... <laughs> that's our Christmas present from uh, Justin. Yeah. I, I think that's a very inspiring note to end it on. Um, this has been the anarcho-liberal moralizing hour with the Antifada <laughs> and Justin Akers Chacon. Um, no, but seriously, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I could talk about this stuff for hours and hours. Yeah, thank you, Justin. That was an, that was was an excellent pleasure. presentation. Glad to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Solidarity. Right. Solidarity.